Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 233, Alfred's Power Play and the Restructuring of Wessex. As always, this show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And this month, we've had two members' episodes that you might be interested in. The first is about a two-hour-long discussion with Dr. Z on the subject of her PhD. One of the nice things about working with Z is that I'm always learning something new when talking to her. And to be perfectly honest, even though I was the editor for her PhD, and so I'm quite familiar with it, I still learn new things during this discussion. It really was a fun talk, and I was pleased that she decided to make herself available to the members. The other episode that was released this month centers around a rather odd story that I uncovered while researching this episode that you're listening to right now. The thing is that as I was pouring through books and articles and charters, trying to piece together the story of Alfred after he retakes his kingdom, I noticed that there was evidence of a major shakeup going on in Mercia at the same time. And at some point, Alfred and Guthrum signed a treaty which split Mercia into two. And at some other point, a man named Athelred took control of Mercia, or at least part of Mercia. And the thing that was driving me nuts was that everyone seems to have different timelines for these events. And each timeline suggests a completely different version of reality. And that's really consequential because by the end of all of these events, Mercia is effectively gone. And so that left me wondering who exactly killed Mercia and when. And was it Alfred? So that's the mystery that we end up diving into in the most recent members episode. We take the evidence, look at it, and examine how each timeline changes the story of Mercia, Guthrum, and Alfred. And you can get instant access to that episode, the episode on Z's PhD, and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Aaron, Thomas, and Gavin for signing up already. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the interviews and found them thought-provoking. And now, let's get back to our main story. While we had all of this political wrangling that was occurring in Tamworth, Guthrum Athelstan was relocating to East Anglia, and he was bringing serious changes with him. Culture isn't something that you can easily uproot in a person. It goes deep. And sure, Guthrum did spend 12 days feasting like an Anglo-Saxon, and he even gave that one awkward striptease to demonstrate that he was committed to embracing the Anglo-Saxon ways and their god. And honestly, I do get the sense that he was genuinely trying to acclimate to his new culture. For example, shortly after moving into East Anglia, we see him issuing coins under his baptismal name, Athelstan. So not only was he accepting his new Christian name, but he was minting coins, which wasn't something that was generally done by Danish kings. In fact, Guthrum was the first of the Scandinavian kings of Britain to mint his own coins. So I do get the sense that he was at least trying. But he had a lifetime of being a Scandinavian. And a 12-day crash course wasn't going to completely erase all of that. And culture is a lot more than just how you pray and what you wear. It's how you work, how you entertain yourself, how you organize your home, your government... Culture is basically how we do things. All things. Culture is all-encompassing. And here we have Guthrum and his men marching into East Anglia. 
sharing out the land to elite supporters, and settling there. And in some ways, it's clear that they tried very hard to be Anglo-Saxons. Archaeological and historical evidence suggests that they kept the multiville structure of the settlements, just like Halfdan did in Jorvik. And so many of the peasants wouldn't have experienced all that much of a change in their daily life. However, as you move further up in society, the changes would have become increasingly dramatic. Starting, of course, with those who were tossed out of their lands, you know, to make room for the incoming Danish nobles who were brought by Guthrum Athelstan. But despite the fact that the biggest changes would have only happened at the top, and that the basic structure of Anglo-Saxon society appears to have been maintained, this would have been a time of great uncertainty for everyone. And it would have likely expressed itself in myriad ways, as suddenly the ways of doing were being changed by the new expectations from the new ruling class. Their new bosses were Scandinavian, and while they might have fancy new Anglo-Saxon names, the basic nature of how they did things on a day-to-day basis would still have been very Scandinavian. It's inevitable that there would have been some culture shock for their new subjects. So the late 9th century would have been a time of great change for East Anglia. And meanwhile, in Wessex, changes of a different sort were coming. Alfred's reconquest had gone very well. Guthrum was gone, and the kingdom was fully under his control now. So 879 had turned out to be a very good year. But despite all of those positives, one fact simply could not be avoided. He never should have lost the kingdom in the first place. Chippenham of 879 might have been a point of pride, but the real lesson for Alfred came out of Chippenham in 878, where he lost it all and he had to live in a swamp for half a year like a bandit. His kingdom had serious weaknesses, and if they didn't modernize, it would be only a matter of time before he or his heirs could find themselves once again leaving a Christmas party early due to unforeseen Vikings. And chief among his problems very well might have been treasonous eldermen. It was fishy that Guthrum had taken them by surprise, and so easily at Chippenham. And I'm certain that Alfred hadn't failed to notice that, while he did have many eldermen and territories, only a few of them came to his aid when he was fighting for survival in the marshes of Somerset. So Alfred's first order of business would have to be getting his house in order. He had one shot at this. Right now, his legend was on the rise, having essentially returned from the dead like Lazarus to retake his kingdom. He also still had an astoundingly effective army at his command. So in this moment, Alfred had a significant amount of leeway in what he could do. And he took full advantage of that position when he looked to reforms. And his first target was the concept of kingship itself. The thing is that the structure of West Saxon leadership was an old one. It was a system that called for the king to be selected by the nobles of the kingdom. The king ruled because everyone who mattered agreed that he should rule. It was kingship by consent. This was the same system that was built back in the early days of Anglo-Saxon culture, where life was centered around heroic honor-bound combat and run by small tribal families struggling to survive. Now over time, the avenues to power began to be monopolized by a few select families, and then over time, kingship became hereditary. But that foundational concept of rule through consent was still getting passed down. 
Consequently, power flowed from the eldermen to the king. Their service to the king was expected to be rewarded, both through good leadership and also through tangible goods. A king was still a giver of rings. And you might remember that shortly before Alfred lost his kingdom, we saw him in Kent trying to curry favor. That was him reacting to exactly this system of power that dominated West Saxon politics through diplomatic relationships among all the nobles. Consequently, a king would have to spend a great deal of time ensuring that his nobles were happy in order to maintain their basic loyalty. And that was time-consuming, expensive, and frankly, it was a difficult way to rule. And this obligation only became more demanding during times of strain and stress. In 878, Alfred was a man who had lost a war, paid a Danegeld, and was also the new kid in town. His eldermen predated him, having already served as brothers, and they likely felt entitled to a certain degree of appreciation, or at the very least, competence. And the events of that year, 878, suggest that some of them didn't feel that their needs were being met, and might have taken advantage of how West Saxon society was arranged in order to better meet those needs, perhaps through regime change. So looking at all of the evidence, it seems that Alfred saw what happened and saw the structure of West Saxon society as a major roadblock to his rule. And the records indicate that he moved pretty quickly to rectify it. When we analyze the charters prior to the disaster at Chippenham in 878, we can see a huge number of nobles, but there are about a dozen who would appear most frequently. If something important was happening, it was these dozen or so eldermen who were likely to be present. So these were likely the prominent members of Alfred's Witan. These were the eldermen who were the real movers and shakers in the kingdom, and the ones who likely felt that Alfred owed them his crown. But something curious happened right after Alfred retook the throne in 879. Seven of those 12 eldermen vanished from the record, and they appear to have been replaced by eight new eldermen. These same eight eldermen then became regular features in court, suggesting that they were the new members of the Witan. Now we can assume that these men were trusted by Alfred, and I can't help but wonder if these were relationships that were built during his time on Athelney. But the fact of the matter is that this was far more than just a few fresh faces in the cabinet. Alfred was looking to shift the incentive structure of the Witan, and in Wessex in general. The old way of doing things involved the king being indebted to his nobles. The long-term eldermen of the Witan, those that served Alfred's brothers, had come from long-entrenched noble families, and they likely would have been very attached to this way of doing things. But by eliminating the majority of the previous ruling order, and replacing them with people that Alfred selected himself, he could very quickly turn this system of rule on his head. All of a sudden, the king didn't owe his position to the eldermen. Instead, a bunch of those eldermen now owed their position to the king. A year earlier, if you looked at the structure of West Saxon life, you could see how the nobility had certain incentives to betray their liege, depending on the circumstances. But now... Now they were incentivized to demonstrate their total and complete loyalty to Alfred in hopes of either getting a position or at least maintaining their position. All power flowed from him, 
and they had nothing to gain by betraying him. During this same period, we also see the ouster of Bishop Tunbert of Winchester and his replacement by a guy named Denewulf. Later legends have it that Denewulf was actually the swineherd who lived on Athelney and that this appointment was a reward for his loyalty or perhaps even a punishment for Tunbert's lack of loyalty. And that all sounds like legend, but there could be the seed of truth in there that Alfred was so powerful during this period that he was even able to select a loyalist bishop at Winchester during his return to power. But regardless of what happened with Bishop Tunbert, what we're seeing here with the Witan is nothing short of a massive purge of the old structure and an installation of a new one that would center upon Alfred. Now doing this wasn't without its dangers. In particular, we read that there was a growing sense of discontent among some members of the West Saxon nobility regarding Alfred's succession. Remember, Alfred's inheritance of Wessex was a little bit strange. He was the youngest of all of his siblings, and his older brother had left behind a living male heir, actually left behind two. And yet, it was Alfred who now sat on the throne. That's pretty much the exact plot to the Lion King. And it looks like some of the nobility weren't all that keen on serving Uncle Scar. And actually, in some ways, this was worse than Uncle Scar. Scar had everyone believing that Simba was dead. Meanwhile, Alfred totally acknowledged that his nephews were alive. He just wanted everyone to believe that there was a private agreement between himself and his brother, stating that his nephews wouldn't inherit a damn thing. And instead, Athelred, his brother, wanted everything to go to Alfred and his kids. And I guess that is possible. I mean, bad fathers are a thing. They happen sometimes. And Athelred may have also had an incentive to keep his children off the throne, being that it's already killed pretty much his entire family up to this point. But it's still a bit of a stretch to ask everyone to just take it on faith that Athelred was such a shit dad that he was totally cool with disinheriting his kids forever. And consequently, people were beginning to grumble about it. And frankly, Alfred should have seen this coming. He had stripped the Witan of a lot of their power, and by doing that, he gave them a huge incentive to find a rival claimant to the throne. And Alfred's nephews... Athelhelm and Athelwald were exactly that sort of rival claimant. They had a good claim, and if the Witan can enact a coup and give one of Alfred's nephews the crown, then suddenly the new king would be indebted to the Witan, and the balance of power would return to the nobility. It was a big problem for Alfred, and the only way for him to fix it would be to ensure that he and his kids were the only legitimate claimants to the throne of Wessex. Not an easy task. So, he called a council at Langdena, and he summoned his newly reshuffled Witan, and ordered that the will of his father, King Athelwulf, be read out loud to them. You can imagine Alfred looking at each member of the Witan square in the eye as they reached the portion of the will that granted the kingdom to each of Athelwolf's sons in turn. Now, Alfred interpreted the will to mean that the whole kingdom went to him as the last surviving son, because there were no provisions made for grandchildren. He also attested that his brother, Athelred, came to the same conclusion. However, under West Saxon law, that wasn't the end of the controversy the Witan was free to make their own determination. 
This was about as high stakes as it could get without marching out onto a battlefield. The fate of Alfred's rule and the inheritance of his children was hanging in the balance. And Alfred tells us that at this council, quote, I begged them for all the love of me and offered them my pledge that I would never bear any of them a grudge because they declared what was right, that none of them would hesitate either for love or fear of me to pronounce the common law, lest any man say that I wronged my young kinsfolk, the older and the younger. End quote. And I'm calling bullshit on that for one very specific reason. Alfred is telling us this after the fact. But at the time, at this council, he was at the zenith of his power, having shown his might on the battlefield and having accomplished a major political victory over the Witan with his purge. And when he called this vote, he did so publicly. Anyone who wanted to vote against him would have to do so in front of Alfred, his allies, and presumably his hearthrod. Do you really believe that the Witan was voting freely here? This was Sopranos level intimidation, and I don't think it was missed by any of the Eldermen. And I'm sure it surprised precisely no one that the entire council voted to uphold Alfred's claim. And then, to seal the vote, each Elderman would have been required to swear his oath upon the cross, thus establishing Alfred's succession under the laws of both God and men. The consolidation of power is breathtaking in its display of effective statesmanship. And now that his claim to the throne was fully secure, Alfred was free to enact another series of sweeping reforms. And his next target was the military. Alfred's time in Somerset and the shameful losses to Halfdan years earlier had revealed significant weaknesses in the West Saxon way of doing warfare. Their strategy was ancient. And it all centered around pitched battles, which historically had been as much about ritual as they had been about war. And this war culture meant that the Anglo-Saxon armed forces were small, professional, and well-trained. The classic war band was a fighting force that was dominated by the warrior elite, the Hearthwarod. And it made a great deal of sense in the days of Penda to fight in that way. You didn't need large numbers, and you didn't need to cover huge amounts of territory. What you needed were just a small group of warriors disciplined and trained well enough to be able to take and hold a specific battlefield. They didn't need to occupy a kingdom, and they certainly didn't need to engage in the large-scale strategic defense of a kingdom. They just needed to show up to the appointed battlefield and kick the hell out of whoever they're facing off with. And this style of fighting had worked well for them for generations. But the Danes weren't playing by these rules. And when you're facing off with large numbers of foreign warriors who could and would show up anywhere, and when you're dealing with multiple raiding bands who are looting damn near everything and would run off at a moment's notice, having a small special forces group wasn't going to help all that much. Even if he could get his Hearthworld within range of a Vikinger crew, the odds were pretty good that the Scandinavians would just hop into their longships and sail away. Alfred was playing tennis, while the Danes were playing capture the flag. So to solve this problem, Alfred needed more people, and he needed to be able to raise them quickly. 
They already had experience conscripting large numbers of people for individual campaigns in the past. And these conscripts were called the Ferd, the Adventure. But the Ferd wasn't a standing army. They were just military-aged dudes from various shires and villes. They weren't warriors. They were farmers. So their training wasn't great. And even worse, they took a long time to muster and deploy. So even with the increased number of bodies, you still had problems with mobility and deployment. And that was a serious issue for the Anglo-Saxons, because the Danes were using hit-and-run tactics, and generally, they avoided open warfare. By the time the Anglo-Saxons had a chance to muster their forces, the area had already been plundered, and the Danes had moved on. It was a real problem. And Alfred's time finding a guerrilla campaign had taught him firsthand how effective highly mobile hit-and-run tactics could be. They had severely weakened Guthrum by using the same methods that the Danes did. By striking when and where their enemies were weak. By seizing provisions from undefended locations. It had worked. But simply because Alfred was back on the throne didn't mean that things were going to just return to the old ways. They couldn't. Warfare had changed forever, and Wessex would need to adjust its defenses if Alfred's reign was going to continue. They needed to find a way to minimize the effectiveness of these hit-and-run tactics. And that's no small task. It would actually require a restructuring of the West Saxon military. And consequently, Wessex itself would need to be heavily reorganized. The first phase of this came in the form of the army. It simply was no longer feasible to allow the safety of the kingdom to rest upon the efforts of a small professional warrior class. The West Saxons needed to be able to respond quickly and effectively as soon as a raiding band struck. And that meant that they needed to deploy soldiers all throughout the kingdom in units that were sufficiently large enough to counter a Viking raid. They needed bodies on hand at all times. And that meant that service in the army could no longer be a noble pursuit. Given the size of the force that he was looking to build, sheer necessity would require that he conscript the peasantry the way he had done in times of strain when they called the Ferd. But this wouldn't be like calling the Ferd. The plan wasn't to pull them up for a single battle. Instead, he needed peasants to be deployed in the field on a long-term basis. This wasn't a single adventure, which is what Ferd meant. It was going to be their new job. And there's an old adage that an army marches on its stomach. Feeding an army is a logistical nightmare even today. And establishing a very large full-time army for the first time meant that for Alfred, he needed to solve this problem with no roadmap. And that problem was actually exacerbated in his case, since Alfred was conscripting the very same people who normally would be producing the food that he needed. So if he wanted a large conscript army, who exactly was going to be working in the fields? And on top of that, you also have the issue of morale. Alfred was asking a bunch of farmers to take on a new career. He was asking them to be warriors and to fight some of the most fearsome pirates in Europe. But these people weren't raised to be fighters. And it showed. Do you remember how difficult it was for the Anglo-Saxons to maintain a siege against the Danes? The Ferd kept sneaking away and abandoning the fight. 
In fact, many of the Dangelds that we've seen thus far appear to have been the result of anxious leaders who decided to buy off their enemy out of fear of facing a mutiny from their own army. The Ferd had shown time and time again that they just didn't have the stomach for long-term warfare. And of course they didn't. Put yourself in their shoes. While you're out there risking your life for this noble, what's happening to your fields while you're gone? Who's tending to your crops? Every hand is needed in the farm, and your absence would likely have an impact upon the harvest. And I'm sure it escaped no one's notice that the Northmen were also able to strike anywhere at a moment's notice. And yet this Atheling is telling you that you're supposed to leave your family defenseless and just hope that the Northmen didn't attack while you're off keeping some other village safe. How eager would you be to go and pick up that spear? And that's just from the peasant's point of view. What about the landowning nobles? Alfred was asking them to deplete the economic engine that ran their holdings. They were completely reliant upon the peasants to produce the wealth that the nobility enjoyed. And all of a sudden, Alfred was looking to take that away. So what Alfred was asking wasn't just an enormous departure from the way things have been done. It was also incredibly expensive and required a huge amount of trust on the part of the men that he was conscripting. If this was going to work, he'd need to find a way to keep the kingdom running economically, which meant that he'd have to find a way to keep the farms operating. And he'd also need to find a way to convince his conscripts that their lands would remain safe while they were deployed. So in response to this, Alfred divided his forces in two. One half would be on duty for a period of time, while the other half was back at home, farming. And then they'd switch off. And that ensured that half of his army would always be on service. But the other half would be defending their homes and working in the fields. It was an elegant solution to the problem. And where he got this idea is the subject of quite a lot of debate. Some have tried to argue that Asser suggested it. But this rule appears to have been in effect before Asser arrived. Abel suggests that it might have been from what Alfred read in the Bible as this does bear some similarity to what King Solomon did with his rotational system. We don't know for sure. It's a mystery that may never be solved. But the new standing third, with rotating service, was brilliant. However, it wasn't perfect. We know that Alfred experienced at least a few growing pains with this new system, actually. For example, in 879, one of these rotation periods ended right in the middle of a siege, and his furred just got up and walked away. Their term was up, so they just left. Right in the middle of a siege. And unsurprisingly, the siege failed. And Alfred was probably tearing his hair out over that. But it's curious that he couldn't even stop them from leaving. And that should give you an idea of how potentially mutinous the furred actually was. Even when they had a limited term, they were still ready to walk away at a moment's notice. So as good as this solution was, it really wasn't perfect. But overall, it did work. The farms continued to operate, his forces stayed fed, and he had the mobile standing army that he needed to counter the Scandinavian incursions. We're also getting hints from this time that Alfred's new furred were starting to use horses. Whereas earlier in history, this would have just been reserved for members of the nobility. 
and using horses would have allowed for quick transport and also would have cut down the damage that could be made by the hit-and-run tactics used by the Danes. Then, with his army in place, Alfred moved on to the second phase of his reforms. Construction. The order was sent out that Wessex would undertake a massive building project. Over the last 30 or 40 years, Wessex had been slowly building fortified settlements, what they called burrs. But the number of these burrs, and the pace of their construction, wasn't meeting the demands of the time. So Alfred increased the construction of these defensive structures. Now these burrs tended to have a ditch, an embankment, and likely a timber rivetment across the top. The ramparts were around 10 feet tall, and in an emergency, they would have been lined with archers. And when you imagine it, it might not actually sound like all that much to you. I mean, 10 feet and a bunch of archers isn't all that much. But they were quick to construct, and actually, they would have presented quite a problem for a Vikinger crew, unless for some reason they had siege equipment with them. They'd be left either trying to just knock down the walls or trying to scale them, and meanwhile, the West Saxons would be turning them into pincushions. So overall, these burrs were a pretty good solution. And while Alfred does appear to have focused his construction on sites that were already defensible, or were already along major roads and passages, so as best to control and monitor movement throughout the kingdom, he also created some new fortified locations where previously there was nothing. And building fortified settlements in generally unoccupied lands might seem strange at first. I mean, why build a fortification in a place where there's not much to defend? But when you actually look at the location of these burrs, you can start to see what Alfred was likely thinking. Each of these new burrs were approximately one day's march from another burr. So much like how the Romans placed forts all along Hadrian's Wall within easy reach of each other, so as best to enable the occupying legions to quickly coordinate their defenses in case of an attack, Alfred was creating a network of burrs from which he and his army could quickly move. It also would have made the transition of messages much easier during times of conflict. And the burrs also would be able to support each other while also providing protection from major population centers. Alfred's burrs were transforming Wessex from a kingdom to a fortress. And those oddly placed isolated burrs weren't oddly placed at all. They were actually plugging holes in his defensive lines. With these burrs, Wessex was locking itself down. And all of this is assuming that the enemy could even get to these burrs in the first place. And Alfred was working on putting a stop to that as well. Ever since the first Scandinavian raids, it's been clear that Britain's many waterways were its Achilles' heel. The Norse longships were able to use them to great effect, allowing their raiders quick access all throughout the island. So to slow down these strikes, Alfred expanded the building of bridges throughout Wessex. This didn't just make travel upriver far more difficult, but it also made it a lot easier for his army to move throughout the countryside in response to any attack. So what we're seeing here is a radical shift in the war footing of Wessex. And as a consequence, what would have been an easy raid a year or two earlier now had the significant possibility of becoming a bloodbath. That's quite a deterrent for a group of raiders who generally liked easy plunder. But as great as all of this sounds, it wasn't free. 
This was a massive construction project that would tap the resources of everyone within Wessex. Taxes were likely increased substantially to compensate for this. And of course, compulsory work crews would have been instituted all throughout the kingdom. All of Wessex would have been a flurry of activity. In fact, scholars suggest that over 27,000 men would be needed to simply maintain and man these burrs. So assuming that the army of Wessex was deployed only to hold these burrs, and there wasn't any kind of additional mobile force under Alfred's command, what we're looking at here is a rotating force of 54,000 men. And then on top of all of that were the people who were constructing these burrs and bridges. So this is a gargantuan undertaking, and it undoubtedly put the West Saxon nobility, the people who were expected to raise this workforce and army, under a great deal of strain. And going forward, we will see Alfred having to cajole and chastise his subjects into service. But not as much as you might expect. And I suspect that's because of what he did when he first returned to Winchester, where he put a stranglehold upon the power structure of Wessex. By hobbling the Witan, Alfred had effectively bolstered his political flank. The man who lost his kingdom at Chippenham wasn't the same one who came out of the marshes of Athelney. Alfred was a changed man, and Wessex was changing with him. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast. And there are all kinds of other social media communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>